if you have a teenager or a college student, or if you're the grandparent of a teenager or college student, you sometimes ask, what in the world are they thinking? Well, today we're going to have a discussion with Anna Moresh. She's a sophomore at Wheaton College, and we're going to learn more about the mindset of the Gen Z generation. Anna is also a writer and a podcaster and has had her story about the revival at Asbury University published in Christianity Today. So we're going to talk with her about the Asbury revival as well. So I think you're going to find this a fascinating conversation with Anna Moresh. Well, Anna, thanks so much for uh, for agreeing to do this. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Y- you bet. So um, a few months ago, I got a text from a friend, <laughs> and uh, there was this article from Christianity Today, and the friend said, check out the author of this article. And uh, it was you. That's pretty <laughs> cool. How did, yeah. <laughs> you, how did you land that article in Christianity Today? Um, so... I've long loved Christianity Today. It's always been a place that I wanted to work, and I thought it was kind of a five years after graduation type <laughs> type deal. Um, but I recently re- I realized that Wheaton College, which is where I go to college, has a lot of connections to Christianity Today. Mm-hmm. And I had a mentor of mine tell me before I started college that great advice is to write a handwritten letter to anywhere that you're interested in writing, asking nothing, just saying, hey, this is what I really appreciate about the way that you do journalism and what it means to me, and maybe pointing out a story or two that really mm-hmm. spoke to you like as a person. So I did that, and a Wheaton grad ended up getting the letter, and she invited me to come in and tour the office. So okay. that was the first thing that happened, and so I loved it. It was so cool to see behind the scenes who all is in that office and the time and care that they put into each article. Um, through that, I got connected to the features editor, Kara Bettis, and I had her on my podcast, which is a podcast I run with my friend um, for students who are interested in journalism but aren't sure where to start. So we asked her about her profile of Gary Chapman that she put together. We got to learn all about all of the time and months that she put into writing it um, and just asked her a little bit more about what it means to be a Christian journalist. And from there, I got an email from someone from Christian, Christianity Today saying that they had been recommended my name for writing the story mm-hmm. about a perspective on Gen Z revival. So some somewhere in the line, God really just put this together over a series of interactions with them. Um, and somehow I became the person that they asked to write about it. And it was really cool because I'd been really conflicted about revival and was wanting to learn more about it. And having the opportunity made me have to dive in, learn Mm -hmm. about the history of especially like Wheaton College when it comes to revival, um, and to think about it more deeper than I had. I think if I hadn't been tasked with writing the piece, I wouldn't have learned as much as I did about it. Mm -hmm. And so it was a really cool opportunity that like how God used so many people is what I learned while writing the story and that I got to be a small part in that using my gift of writing through this story that he was telling. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, I love that for many reasons. One, as you said, it's always God who allows us to do certain things, and you uh, you did some legwork, right? <laughs> so I want to talk about the article, because the article was about a revival that uh, took place at Asbury University. Um, uh, it seemed uh, to be um, very real. And uh, a lot of kids were involved in it. Um, I want you to, for those listening who may not know about it, tell us a little bit about the revival at Asbury and then what you learned as you did the research on it. 
I wanted to re- interview as many people as I could from as many different places across the U.S. as mm-hmm. possible. Um, also from different backgrounds, Christian college, non-Christian college, um, being involved, loving the revival happening at Asbury, being more skeptical, people watching revival then happening at their colleges, wondering, is this real, is it not? And so what I realized with people is that everyone is having a very different experience when it comes to revival. Mm -hmm. And obviously I didn't interview every single person. And so there's so many more perspectives that I didn't get to hear. But the ones that I did, it was interesting because there was a lot of people who were skeptical. Maybe they heard about it happening in Asbury in a group chat. They all of a sudden saw that it was happening at their school in some form and wondered, are we just trying to copy? Are we trying to fabricate? Mm -hmm. And um, a, a lot of people that I interviewed then went to prayer and they asked God, is this something that I should go to? And it was really interesting because I think as a generation, Gen Z is really hypocritical of the fake and people didn't want to be part of something fake. They didn't want to have their name in history as being someone who attended this revival if it turns out to be phony or somehow fabricated. Mm -hmm. But um, some students that I talked to specifically at Samford, after that prayer, they felt humbled and they went to the revival that was happening at their school and they felt the Lord move. And so it's really interesting how people were skeptical, but then they went and their hearts were changed. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting. And to me, at least, for the beginning of Asbury, absolutely was like the Lord, the Lord working and the way that it spread to other campuses as well. Mm-hmm. I think there is an element of trying to push it a little bit, maybe administration at colleges wanting their school to be included on the list of places revival was happening. I think that definitely was the case, right. unfortunately. But the heart of it, the origins of it absolutely were from the mm-hmm. Lord, from my understanding. Yeah. yeah. So let's go back to the basics. What, what is a revival? And what happened at Asbury that we can now say there was a revival at Asbury? So start out, what's a revival? So I think one of the most important things I stumbled across is while a movement is happening, it's really hard to designate it a revival until post. And so proof of a revival will happen maybe 10, 20 years after, and we can really say for sure there was a revival in this place in Asbury. What scholars and writers can say about Asbury is there was a movement of the spirit that people say they felt. There was a lot of generosity taking place in Asbury. There's stories of people giving up food, putting up collection, making sure there's water for people visiting. Students from the college who maybe didn't go to chapel to allow people from the community and people traveling from way outside of the community Mm -hmm. to come and take their place. And I think where we see like fruits of the spirit like that, that is indicators that there Mm -hmm. is revival. Specifically, um, I talked to a student named Samuel Reed, and he was in charge of filming it. He was just filming chapel like any normal day. He left. He didn't realize that students were staying behind. And so talking about what happened at Asbury, it was a normal chapel. There was a really convicting sermon that was given that people really don't necessarily remember the words of, which is interesting, but they remember the feeling they felt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he was talking about the topic of what does it mean to like really the gospel was presented in a very strong way. A lot of students left, went to classes like normal, and some chapel interns who were students working in the chapel started running through the halls saying, hey guys, chapel hasn't stopped and it's been hours since. Mm. And so Samuel Reed, which is the student that I interviewed from Asbury, he's super into photography and video, and he thought, I want to be able to document this. So he went, set up cameras, started photographing people as they were worshiping, and 
what was interesting is he started more of an outsider to that experience. Mm -hmm. And as he was there, he became more of an insider and personally felt transformed by it, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And so what continued to happen at Asbury is just, it didn't end. They would have students, it wasn't the same worship team. They had people cycling in and out. They started making impromptu schedules. They would make sure there was always someone playing music and there was always people in the building for weeks on end. Mm -hmm. And what started to happen is media organizations wanted to come in. And what is really interesting is the school and the students said no. And I think that's another indicator of this wasn't for show. They didn't want um, kind of outside news organizations to profit off of make sure, like make mm -hmm. essentially making money off of streaming something that was a spiritual movement. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really cool in a way that Asbury was really able to remain faithful to the origins of what was happening at their school. Yeah. And another thing that's really interesting is they had to decide to end it. They had to tell people to go home. It wasn't just a fizzling out, but the school wasn't able to perform as normal students weren't able to go to classes because of how many people um sam reed sent me pictures of just cars all over their campus all over the football field people camped out like the school is no longer able to function mm -hmm. and so to a point they had to resume their core mission which is to educate students and right. you know help their spiritual development but i think that's another interesting thing that it wasn't a fizzling out it was a kind of a safety mm -hmm. safety response <laughs> to end and also seeing that it was getting a little out of hand with people who now as the late adopters were coming to get something rather than to be a part of a communal moment. Right. So. I want to go back to that. I thought that was so interesting. I was listening uh, to uh, a podcast, uh, Timothy Keller, who's, who passed mm -hmm. away. But right after 9-11, uh, everyone went to church, right? Yeah. They're looking for some spiritual answer to mm -hmm. what had happened. And so uh, people were lined up outside Redeemer Church and uh, – Keller's wife was the communications director of the church, and uh, a lot of film crews were trying to get in and film what was going in, and she said, absolutely not. <laughs> we're yeah. not letting any uh, any news organizations inside the church. This, mm -hmm. is, this is our community. So um, uh, this just started at Asbury, and then all of a sudden, this is like national news, and people yeah. are coming from all over. There's no place to stay in Asbury. It's crazy. How did the students kind of feel about the publicity of everything? Yeah, I think um, Sam was one student that I really got to talk in depth with this about. And it was interesting because hearing him talk about the beginning of the Asbury, there was so much hope and joy in his voice and kind of awe of the spirit. But when he, by the point I was talking to him, we were a couple, like maybe a week or so in. And kind of a cynical tone took over, hmm. and the thing that he, the things that he's seen of maybe people pushing to get in, um, outsiders, TV cameras, and it was a sort of mourning of that small, intimate experience hmm. that he had felt, which he saw kind of being cheapened. And so I think that's really interesting, and in just the digital age that we're in, you don't really have small local moments, and I think that's part of why Asbury blew up so quickly, is because someone can put on Instagram, put on TikTok real quick, this is happening, and all of a sudden right. the whole world knows. Right. And so they had a very small amount of time that it was really just that community. And something that he said time and time again was, this was a revival for our school. Looking at the history of Asbury, people have been praying for revival since the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. It's been a re reoccurring prayer in the neighboring churches as well. And so it was a very much um, localized to their community. And so that was something that he pointed out as well, is revival is something that should take place in your community, the place that it's been prayed for. Mm -hmm. And people, 
he was like, I love if you, you're you able to come and experience the Lord, like praise to the Lord that you can do that. Mm-hmm. But also you should be focusing on renewal in your community. And I think that was a really mature perspective that I really appreciated mm-hmm. because there was an element of, let me go and experience this high of the Lord that maybe wasn't mine to be partaken in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really appreciate that perspective. I want to ask you this question. Um, I was with a, a seminary professor one time who uh, taught church history, and um, I, I had some time with him, and I was asking him about a particular, as a seeker-sensitive movement. Mm-hmm. This was years ago. And I said, tell me about this. What are you thinking about it? And uh, as a historian would say, he yeah. said, um, ask me in 10 years, uh, and I'll tell you what I think about it. Yeah. So you mentioned that. Sometimes when we when we read about revival now, it's from a perspective of of, uh, of time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in your in your studies and in your research and in your interviewing, what would you what would you be looking for this coming fall semester, spring semester at Asbury to say, okay, this was truly what we would historians would consider a revival. I think it'll be hard just in the next year to see, but a big indicator that I've run across against is missionaries that will come out of a school and you're able to time like, oh, this revival happened at this school, which we're now able to call a revival. Um, and students of this that year, when they graduated, they made the choice to enter missions work in some way. Okay. And so I think that's a really interesting way of gauging it, as specifically people who decided to then give their lives to the Lord because of a awakening of their souls that they experience. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one really big indicator is what do people choose to do with their life afterwards. And obviously there's smaller ways maybe you don't, you decide to go into a more traditional profession. It's harder to gauge then how, to what expe- extent did you devote your life mm-hmm. to the Lord. But being able to see the career choice of missionary is one really big one. And then I would say just the ways that on a more interpersonal level students are relating to each other that's really hard to like statistically prove or gauge but yeah and then also a continuation of worship what does worship look like what does chapel look like um are people hungry for experience Mm -hmm. that experiencing the lord again and also are they okay with not and um maybe a time of separation from the lord might happen as well which Mm -hmm. is and then that can prove to be even more conducive to growth as well. When I was reading about um, the revival at Asbury, there were all, there was a lot of repentance. There was a lot of uh, interpersonal uh, situations Absolutely. where people were asking forgiveness. And I thought, you know, that it, it always comes back to the real personal aspect Absolutely. of the community, right? A lot of my research was about Asbury and then Wheaton because that's where I go. And there was a revival in the late 90s that happened. And it's been characterized as, as a revival because many of that class went on to missions work. Um, and there's a testimony of one student who was African-American at the school. And he wrote about how he perceived a lot of his other students as hating him and of judging him for his skin color, and which totally could have been very valid at that mm-hmm. time period, at, you know, in the Midwest. Um, but after the revival, he was able to reconcile with a lot of his peers, and he realized that in addition to the real harm that he had experienced, he had some closed-offness towards his brothers and sisters in Christ because of a fear of being judged. And that was so beautiful to me, because I think that's nothing that um, we really talk about or think about today, mm-hmm. and that 
that reconciliation reconciliation that happened is on the, such a small micro level, but it means the world to those you know people in that um, in that school and in that specific like demographic community. And so I think things like that that are so small and really hard to um, like figure out what is the percentage of people who reconciled with each other. We don't know, but reading those testimonies of mm-hmm. people coming out of this will be really interesting. Yeah. For those listening, maybe some parents, maybe some students, what are the pros and cons, positives and negatives about going to a Christian college? Hmm. We yeah. can. I went to a Christian college for a couple of years, and then I, I transferred to a, a public institution. Um, and you know, there were a, a lot of great things being at a Christian college, and then some things I look back and and uh, yeah. not so good. So talk about that. Um, Christian colleges, things that are fantastic, and then things you've got to be careful about in your Christian walk. Yeah, that's really hard. There's so <laughs> much. Um, I'll start with pros. So I think be, having Christian professors has been really wonderful. I went to a public secular high school, and so that was something really new to me, to be in like a biology class or a politics class and have specifically a politics class and kind of have the professor talk about Romans and how that applies and the gospel and how loving people means loving people in politics. What does that look like? And not just um, kind of a broad overview, but the specifics of what is policy and what does that look like for a Christian? Mm -hmm. What are things we should care about? And so that's been a wonderful thing. And to reconcile that your faith has a direct impact on the rest of your life. It's not one part of you. It is you. And I think bringing academics and faith together is a really cool way to experience that. Mm -hmm. Um, As well, a lot of love from my RA, a lot of love from the people on my floor as a freshman. I know a lot of friends who don't really know their RA's name. RA doesn't really care that much. It's more about like an enforcing alcohol policy. (laughs) Whereas at a Christian school, I think there's a real love for mentorship and fellowship Mm -hmm. and caring about people. And um, not that that can't happen at a non-Christian school. Obviously, it does. But I think it's more institutionalized of an RA's job is to serve the freshmen. And that's Mm -hmm. really backwards, (laughs) whereas Mm -hmm. a lot of school freshmen are at the bottom. No one really cares. But if you're following the Christian faith, that means loving the least of these. And in the college setting, that's kind of the newbie freshmen (laughs) who don't know what they're doing. Um, And then cons, I think Gen Z struggles with a lot there's a lot of mental illness we've been through a lot historically exposed to information and social media at an age when the people older than us didn't know what they were exposing us to and that's led to a lot of harm and that's going to affect christian students as well as non-christian students and so i think there is a lot of hurt that i've seen at christian schools and there is kind of this belief that Christian students are going to be perfect and fine, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. And I've also seen a lot of non-Christians at my Christian school, and I think that's really real as well. And I think there is a danger in being in a Christian school that you're able to fly under the radar if you're really dealing with hurt and doubt, and you're not sure about your faith, and you're incredibly lost, but you can put on a mask, show up to chapel, no one knows. Mm. Whereas I think if you're at a non-Christian school, you'd have to be, you'd realize more and you can't go through the motions and you're forced to realize if I'm a Christian, I'm in opposition to my school and it makes you fine tune 
and go through apologetics talking to non-christian people and i think that's another thing is when you're only surrounded by christians it can become very much a bubble and you can forget um maybe your own testimony you can forget how to interact with people who think differently than you and so i think there's a balance there of four years in an undergrad christian school can be time to fine-tune your thoughts, really be invested in kind of a time of healing before you enter into the world again, mm-hmm. or it can also be a time of softening. I want you to talk a little bit about Gen Z. Gen Z, there's all kinds of studies about Gen Z, but uh, you are one, so <laughs> I want to I hear from you. And um, uh, talk about some different levels here. Let's, let's go back and talk. You, you mentioned social media. Uh, you know, you have... You have um, uh, the 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 millennials they kind of um, transitioned into social media. Gen Z, you don't know anything but social media, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you are you are uh, social media natives. Um, how how does how has that impacted your generation? How has social media impacted your generation? It's a lot of ways that we think we understand right now, and I think in the coming years we'll realize it was a lot more. <laughs> more than we even realize right mm-hmm. now. Um, I think like a majority of people in my generation had a phone before they were 12. And so that's the time of your coming of age. And so that directly affects who you're going to become as a person. And we don't exactly know how yet mm-hmm. because um, Gen Z is like 19, born in 1997 to around 2012. And so that's a pretty large group of people. And um, not most of them are in their young 20s so we're not exactly sure but in terms of like the teenagers that i know and interact with i think social media has positive and negative impacts positive would be you're able to see what's going on in the world you know that there's you know starvation in yemen you know that there's war in different places of the world Mm -hmm. and you're very in tune to that and that allows you to be more open-minded. I think Gen Z is a very open-minded mm-hmm. generation because we know what's happening in the world. Whereas I think if you were a young person in our older generations, you had no idea. But it's instead you're constantly attached to the news and state of the world. And so that can have a really positive impact and also just incredibly anxiety-inducing. You know every single problem around the world and every single day it feels like there's more and more and more. And so when you're young and that's shaping your view of the world you're going into, that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real lack of hope, especially with climate change and worries about the future. I think Gen Z can be a pretty hopeless generation because we're inundated with information about how the world is falling apart, mm-hmm. which is true in some some extent, but also can be exaggerated. Mm-hmm. And so I think that broad lens of why are people so exhausted and tired and anxious and depressed is because of just like constant information. Mm -hmm. And then as well as the interpersonal level, um, a lot of Gen Z people are more confident and comfortable talking with people online and through their phone than in person. And I think that COVID really exacerbated that. And it's really hard for people to go back to talking with people normally in person. And like, that is a huge problem and no one knows what that will do mm-hmm. to our generation specifically mm-hmm. it's amazing the uh anxiety um loneliness depression mental illness the whole bit i was mm-hmm. reading the other day that today only 71 percent of uh, young women over the age of 16 
have a driver's license. That's the lowest percentage yeah. because you stay at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you can interact with people online. And it's, like you say, we're not going to know the impact of this until years from now. And uh, people are trying to determine what that is. We're seeing some. We're seeing some early consequences, but uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Um, how did how you were in what grade in high school when COVID hit? Uh, sophomore year. And how did COVID um, impact? Well, let's just start with you. How did COVID <laughs> impact you yeah. uh, as a student? I was all online sophomore, like the second half of sophomore year. Uh, junior year, it was began online. As soon as it was hybrid, I immediately went to school because mm-hmm. I realized that I need to be around people to be okay, which is most humans. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was a beginning of everyone, especially when I was a sophomore, we were excited about it. Everyone was tired. We wanted a break. It was supposed to be two weeks. It was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, for a while of sophomore year, I was like, this is great. There's so many distractions and wasted time that happens when you're in school. Um, just this will allow me to focus on my education. I'll just get the school. I'll be done. I can go do other things. And then you realize, oh, those small moments of seeing, oh, my friend's sad sitting next to me. I can help them. You miss out on those when you don't get to talk to them and you can only text and you have no idea what's happening. Hmm. And so I think that's a really hard thing that a lot of people are realizing is not only were you personally struggling, but your friends were too. And you didn't get to know or be there because you didn't get to physically see them. And so I think that's not only are people individually suffering, but realizing the ways in which you weren't able to help your friends because you were isolated from them is also a really hard thing to go through as mm-hmm. well. So um, Gen Z, a, a lot of feelings, like you say. I mean, you're seeing everything happening around the world. Yeah. It can be overwhelming. And and then, and then truth becomes um, relative, right? So... I feel this today, I might feel this tomorrow, but that's okay, even if it's conflicting feelings. Um, Truth can be, um, again, relative. So how do do I share Christ? How do you share Christ with a person who may not believe the Bible to be true, some ancient, you know, not even ancient truth, but ancient writings? you don't start with proving the resurrection because that's fine. You feel that way, and I feel differently. Yeah. So we're all good, right? How do you begin to share Christ with with a a person who has kind of no basis of truth to begin with? The first thing <clears throat> is apologetics, as we have previously used, like or not we. I'm not part of older <laughs> generations, but as older generations as previously used, just aren't going to work. Mm-hmm. I think Gen Z is starved for human connection, desperately wants to feel part of something. So I think that's a real way to reach Gen Z. I think most conversion and most positive exposure to Christianity will happen through intimate conversation. And I think that begins with sharing about yourself. People want you to be real. People want you to be authentic. And talking about, this is how I struggle with my faith. These are doubts that I have. And meeting them and people realizing, oh, they're not just pretending. They're not just ignoring the facts. Like, they really wrestle with these things. And they Mm -hmm. think about their faith. And their faith impacts how they live. I think showing people that 
your faith isn't just something that you do on a Sunday and talking to them about these are ways in which my faith has changed over the years and what is meant to me is going to be a really valuable way to meet people. Gen Z wants to see that you think deeply about things and that you're not brainwashed because I think that's a huge narrative of what Christianity is. It's people think it's you know, being brainwashed into believing in a false reality mm-hmm. and demonstrating that you wrestle with your faith is really appealing to people, I think. Yeah. So being able to share doubts, being able just to be real, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. we all go through certain times when when we question, you know, what I, I, um, I was talking to some people just this weekend and uh, be, because of some challenges in their life, we they question, you know, God's love for them, God's care for them. Why does those are natural and normal? And I think mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. It's it. We should ha- we should always be like that. But I think this generation yeah. says you've got to start. We we would start with the apologetics and then get to that. Right. This generation, you got to start with the personal story. Absolutely, that's great. That's yeah. great. Talk about your podcast. You're okay. you're uh, you're uh, a rising sophomore, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At uh, Wheaton College, your major is journalism, uh, English and international relations. Okay, mm-hmm. all right, and English and international relations, and you have a podcast. Mm-hmm. Talk about your podcast and give us the why ba- behind it. I have a podcast <laughs> called Slouching Towards Journalism. It's a play on the title by Joan Didion called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. It's a book from the kind of new journalism of the 70s, 80s. And so what we want behind that name to represent is that working towards anything, specifically a career in journalism, as that's what me and my co-host Noelle Worley are passionate about, is a slouching process. It's difficult. You're slowly learning, and it'll take a while. And so we like that idea of we're not perfectionists, and we're not telling you how to do anything. And the real mission of the podcast is we're walking along with you which I think is a really beautiful image for the Christian faith as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that Gen Z really appreciates is we're not pretending to be experts. We want to walk alongside this career in journalism, which is right now our passion, and do it with you. And so we've gotten the chance to talk to a lot of Wheaton grads who are in the field of journalism um, at the Washington Post, at Christianity Today, different publications, both secular and Christian and ask them about what are some of their favorite stories they've gotten to written. What is your, what is the way that you interview people? And how do you go about finding the story, finding the truth and making sure that your reporting is honest? Okay. And so, yeah, it's been wonderful. I love getting to meet new people and talk about their careers with them and learn what makes them passionate about what they do. So uh, before we go, tell us uh, a favorite interview and kind of the wow that you learned from that interview. Hmm. I think talking with Kara Bettis of Christianity Today about her Gary Chapman profile was really, really cool. Um, she had been working on it for a long time, had a brief line about how Gary, or Mr. Chapman, liked to do kinesthetics and lifting. And her editor said, can you dig in more about that? Who is this like man in his 80s who does little workouts? Like, tell me about it. And so she went back, visited him in person, which is so important when you're writing stories about people. I think a lot of times we like to do it online and phone calls, and that simply won't mm-hmm. cut it. So she went to visit him, flew out there, and she realized that while he was doing his lifting and his weights that he was praying. 
while he did it. Mm-hmm. And he would go through a list of all the people in his life and all of the global themes of the world that he wanted to pray about. And so it's this really beautiful line in the profile and getting to hear that she didn't just come up with that. It was a process. And she was able to listen to her editor, be open to advice, and get that core chunk of the story that really made the profile it was really cool. Anna, thanks so much for coming in today and appreciate it. Uh, we're going to be excited. We're going to have you on again and just to <laughs> see God's work in your life and the things that you're passionate about and how he allows uh, you to really uh, pursue those things. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Thank you. Well, I hope you found that an encouraging conversation. Anna represents uh, many young adults who are committed to Jesus and committed to following hard after him. As parents and grandparents, we need to be praying for our college students and asking God to protect them and keep them close to him at a time in life when they're making a lot of decisions. So thanks so much for listening. Be sure to join us on our next podcast.